Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Borg and Grant Brenner about their new book, published in 2015 by Central Recovery Press, entitled Irrelationship, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. Mark Borg is a licensed psychologist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City, with expertise in community intervention and organizational consulting. Grant Brenner is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and consultant in New York City as well. He specializes in treatment of adults with difficulties in relationships, professional endeavors, and personal development. And Daniel Barry is a registered nurse also practicing in New York City with experience working in inpatient home care and community settings. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Yanio. So with us today, we have Mark Borg and Grant Brenner. Daniel Barry could not be here with us, but we're very happy to talk to the two of you. I'm eager to get to your new book because I found it so relatable and think that our listeners will too. But first, how did the three of you come together to write this book? Well, I've been working on a project for quite a while. This is Mark called uh, Are You a Human Antidepressant? And I've been working with another team of people and we've been following through on this idea of compulsive caretaking. And interestingly, the the group itself, we ourselves, you know, really hit a wall and uh, we, we just couldn't function. Um, so at that time, I invited Grant and Danny to join me in just continuing to think through some of this uh, compulsive caretaking kind of dynamic stuff that was going on both uh, in the writing and among myself and the uh, members of the other group. And we started imagining this compulsive care, giving thing less as something that people were doing to each other, including you know the way that I might have felt from the members of the other group, and more something that people were doing with each other. And we started to think about it less as a as a problem, less as uh, some kind of new diagnosis, and more like a, a dynamic or even a psychological defense system. And that's how we came up with Irrelationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the ideas that we're borrowing upon from group relations theory, the work of Wilfred Bion and A.K. Rice, is the idea of a social defense, which is a defense which is shared among two or more people and is quite different from the idea of an individual psychological defense. I think this is one of the really novel parts of the irrelationship theory, is that it's something that people are doing together. It requires that they do it together and and participate unwittingly in it together. So in some ways, this is a book specifically about relationships, maybe even about romantic relationships, although I know it can be any relationship. How did the three of you become interested specifically in intimate relationships? Well, it started out actually with a primary couple. We could call them our patient zero couple. It was a, a patients that I was working with who 
I saw this playing out both in the couple and then dynamically and in the transference that, uh, between myself and specifically uh, the male member of the couple. And at the further along that we went with exploring what had gone on in the marriage and what had gone on uh, you know, in this person's history, his name was Glenn, uh, and he's, he's a primary character in the book and, and our blog, the more I started seeing this playing out between he and I, the more Grant, Danny, and I talked about it, and even at some point saw it playing out among us, the three of us. So, so absolutely, you're absolutely right. We first saw it in romance, and then we saw it applying to us, and then we started sort of expanding our thinking into, and we started seeing it well, kind of everywhere. Yeah, I also think it comes from uh, particularly Mark uh, and my clinical practices, which so many people come in with romantic problems, and so often personal relationships are the focus of psychotherapy. Of course, people also talk about difficulty in work relationships, and it's easy to observe that the same dynamics play out in work settings in parallel but different ways. Uh, But I think the demand that patients have is about romantic relationships. That's one of the main things that people are worried about. I think particularly in a city like New York City, which is so frenzied when it comes to people's frustrated wishes to achieve romantic relationships and questions about the meaning of romantic relationships. So I think that's why our book ended up being about romantic relationships, though the blog covers other areas, whereas you know there's a very large market for business psychology books as well. But that's not where we're coming from. Mostly, although if you read the blog, you'll see that there, there is, you know, we do cover all of these areas. Yeah, in the in the book, it's not where where we're coming from. The book principally is about romantic relationships as seen through the lens of key childhood developmental relationships, parental and family relationships. Yeah, we would like to do work on on a business book in the near future, though. And and we'll definitely get to that. But for for those of our listeners who are getting to know you for the first time and don't know about your blog, can you tell us about your blog? Well, we have a blog on Psychology Today. Actually, we have a blog on Psychology Today, and we have our own blog uh, on irrelationship.com that basically is just following this theme, and we're taking the idea of using dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy, and we're just taking it into every possible nook and cranny that we can. On Psychology Today, the blog is is just one after the other, but if people go to irrelationship.com, they'll see that our blogs are categorized and searchable by keyword according to main themes, core concepts, family friendships, romantic relationships, and work life, which makes it very easy for people to sort through different topics if they want to find topics that are relevant to their particular questions. We also take um, questions from uh, from viewers of our website and consultations Quite often, uh, someone will ask us a question on on the website, and we will write a blog in response to that or respond to them directly. So we're very interactive in that way. That's great. So if if people are listening and have found this book relatable, it, they may not know this, but now they do, that um, they can contact you and interact with you if this book has in some way inspired them. But before we go any further... Can you tell us what exactly is a relationship? I think our nutshell definition of irrelationship is, you know, a relationship is a is a psychological defense system that two people create and sustain two people at least 
create and sustain to protect them from the conscious awareness of anxiety related to it, it particularly defends against the awareness of intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. Now, some people might hear that and think, oh, well, that's not me because I, I want to experience intimacy. I want to experience empathy. And, and one of the running premises of your book, I think, is that we're not always aware when we're engaged and in relationships. So how do you point this out to someone? Yeah, we're, we're definitely working from a model of the mind, which is a multiple self-states model in keeping with our psychoanalytic background. So part of me authentically and sincerely wants, needs intimacy, and consciously I'm doing everything that I can to make intimate relationship works. As far as I know, I'm, I'm doing a good job, and I don't know why it isn't working. Another part of me that I'm not fully in touch with those feelings, which we would say is dissociated, another part of me is not aware of how terrified I am of intimacy and what the meaning of having intimacy would entail for me in terms of emotional risk, vulnerability, future prospects for loss if I get close to someone. I'm sure Mark has more to say about it. Well, I was in a band when I was young. <laughs> I was in a punk band, and, uh, and we had a song that I had no idea was really setting the stage for me to later become a psychoanalyst. And the lyric that this reminds me of goes, I want you, I do, almost as much as I don't. And that sliver between wanting and not wanting is really where your relationship exists. It exists in that ambivalent place where I really do consciously believe, like you said, that I want intimacy and I want to be vulnerable and I want to be open and I certainly want to feel and believe that I'm invested in us going forward. But it's so scary. And, you know, let's say we have this history that plays out through reversing roles and care. And so I can't really allow someone to take care of me. That's the interesting thing that I find about a relationship as we continue to sort of discover its twists and turns is that the reason why it's you know, it, why we think of it specifically as compulsive caregiving is that the care itself that I'm offering you, I'm pushing care onto or into you, disallows me from experiencing the care that you're offering me. And that's, you know, where it becomes sort of a bottleneck. And that's where it becomes this one directional care. We, we really uh, sort of riff off, um, you know, the old you know, the whole idea that we start out as caregivers, you know, that we really come at each other. Uh, and we, we need our parents to be well. But why is receiving caregiving scary? Because once you receive caregiving from someone else, that person starts to matter. And we start, you know, and, then, and once that person matters, especially if that person becomes imperative, then the rug can be pulled right out from under us. One of, one of the other reasons that, that receiving care can be frightening from a, a childhood development point of view is that a lot of times the, the roles are reversed in in a, something like a traumatic or at least a, a highly distressed childhood, the, the child in our model is taking care of the parent, at least emotionally, often the mother. The mother has some kind of problem with emotion regulation. And so the child, in order to survive, unconsciously, unwittingly develops habits to make sure that the parent is as stable and available as possible. Now, the reason that this can be scary is that a lot of times primary caregivers are unstable or they're variably aware. So a mother who sometimes is very caring 
and then all of a sudden becomes incompetent to provide care is more frightening to a child because of the unpredictability than a parent who is behaving in a way that can be expected. So in adult relationships, when people behave unpredictably, sometimes being available and then suddenly becoming available, that creates a lot more fear or it can also create numbness and desensitization to care. And we should say right away, I mean, one of the things that maybe we might want to say right off the bat, although I know it's a little ways in, is that part of the inspiration for this comes from Harold Searles and from his idea of the patient as therapist to his analyst. You know, his primary idea there was that we are born caregivers. We, we need our environment, also known as parent or, you know, facilitating environment, parenting one key caregiver, to be well must be well or we are not going to survive. So this brings to mind for me that I, I, I notice how you do a pretty thorough job of telling us how these relationship patterns begin in childhood and stick with us through adulthood. You, it's a pretty um, comprehensive origin story, if you want to call it that. But, but that made me wonder a couple of things. Number one, who is this book written for? Are you, are you writing this book for a specific slice of the population who has who's had this kind of background or does everyone engage in some degree of a relationship well <laughs> we really believe that this is you know epidemic i mean we really the more the further we've gone along i, I had a striking conversation with a friend one morning my kid was in dance class. She had come to see. She's a very good family friend, and we were walking. And she said, uh, you know, she'd gotten into a new relationship, and uh, we were talking, and I told her about the book. And she said, oh, I'm going to buy that book. It sounds so wonderful. I'm just starting a new relationship. And I, I described just a little bit about the book and about, you know, the idea of using dysfunctional relationships uh, to hide from intimacy. And we talked for a few more minutes, and she said, as we were parting, there's no way I'm buying that book. You know, because it's scary. It's really scary, the idea that maybe we're up to something with this person that we're not aware of. And maybe all these good intentions and all the care and affection and the love that we're sharing with each other in the beginning isn't really what it really is. What do we say, you know, that after the honeymoon period is when the luggage arrives, right? (laughs) (laughs) So your relationship is kind of about when the luggage arrives, well, your relationship is when the luggage gets lost, and then the airline doesn't know what happened to it, and then you have to like go there, and then they give you some money, but it doesn't actually replace what was in your bags. But I think it's an exception. We kind of joke that people are taken aback because we're to some extent trying to gently confront people about some things that are, that are denied or, or, or disconnected from their awareness, and a lot of times people do need... Uh, a couple of weeks to kind of metabolize the first couple of chapters, particularly if they haven't been in therapy or if they're not familiar with self-help, which we call self-other help. The book is written for people who are struggling with romantic relationships. Uh, They could be single. They could be in a relationship. We've gotten tremendously positive feedback from far more people than say that they can't make it through the book who say that it speaks to them, it's changed their lives, they've been able to use it immediately because we have exercises at the end of each chapter. Mm -hmm. The last part of the book is really a pathway toward sustaining change with a significant other, and that's the workbook that we're working on. So it's written for people who are struggling with uh, intimate personal relationships in adulthood, but it could really be read by a general readership. Um, who are interested in psychology or who want to think about how it applies to family relationships or work. 
but our focus is on personal relationships of a romantic nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, about this origin story, whereby the child learns to take care of the caregiver so that he or she can feel safe, how did you realize that this is how it starts? Is this coming from theory, or is this coming from your clinical experience? Both. I mean, again, the, there's this character, Glenn, who we know very, very well and uh, for years. And, you know, we're seeing him, we're watching his history, we're, we're reading about, you know, now, uh, you know, in the blog and in the book, you know, we're exploring um, much of this through theory, again, a lot of Searles. And, and this guy, Glenn, who, I mean, he's, just, he's so textbook. He, you know, his parents got together when he was very young. There was terrible disappointment when the father just wasn't able to really show up for the relationship. The mother is bitter from, and depressed for many, many years. And Glenn is this energetic, exciting, fun, sort of clown of a kid who spends the next, you know, 15 years trying to make her happy. Then he, lo and behold, he winds up with a woman who was herself very depressed and felt very sidelined from her family. And it was her job to try to make her family members, her parents specifically, feel like they were doing a good enough job. You put these two people together. And when we saw that, and we, we really were able to get into the nitty gritty of their history and of their lives. They were very generously shared with us. We, we just saw this thing come bloom. And once we started writing about that, other stories started to come through the woodwork. So I would say most of the stories sort of drove the theory. And then we found bits and pieces of other theory, including Beyond and, of course, Sullivan and Frome and all these people you know, who helped us uh, uh, make it more of a solid, even, even somewhat academic theory. Yeah, psychological theories, particularly psychoanalytic theories, of course, they always emphasize childhood development. We also understand that events in adulthood are very important. The other thing that we draw upon is neuroscience and attachment theory, which substantiates that research, that um, that theory with research. Mm-hmm. You know, we understand that secure versus an insecure attachment style significantly comes from the childhood caregiving environment and the way people are treated uh, as children. And that that's a language that people learn, um, the language of relating. And we think that people can learn a language of ear relating when when they're young. And then that tends to just get uh, consolidated and more deeply entrenched as they have the same types of um, relationship experiences that don't work out. Mm. That just teaches them that the way they see things is right. Right. Uh, And, of course, birds of a feather flock together. (laughs) Well, inversely, (laughs) you seem to coin a term in this book, the helpaholic. I think a lot of I think a lot of listeners will relate to this concept. Can you tell us what exactly is a helpaholic? That's really funny you said that because actually that was kind of a throw. I, I like that you that you're that you um, that you hit on that because it, it, in a in a funny way, helpaholic comes from the original manuscript. It comes from are you a, a human antidepressant? And that kind of got a bit thrown away uh, just because we we tried uh, more and more to steer away from you know the whole idea of this being a diagnosis or a pathology. We don't we don't see this as a pathology or a, a one person issue or a one person issue. But but you know you're right. I mean these are two helpaholics. But it's the um, I mean, we have the performer who is this helpaholic, if you will, who basically performs all the care um, directly, overtly, almost like upon the other person that we call the audience. And the audience, more subtly, you know, is involved in helpaholism by 
taking the care and acting as if the care is effective. That, to us, is a brand new way of looking at at compulsive caregiving that really I'm not sure would have materialized had we not – had we not really been so able to see, um, you know, this dynamic at play early on in the Glenn Vicky uh, scenario? Yeah, and as as much as the two participants are helpaholics, the performer in a very overt, explicit way, the audience is a helpaholic by serving the function of not accepting the help, which drives the performer to have a greater impetus to try to help. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. At the same time, on a more covert level. Both of them are rejecting help. They're rejecting the authentic help that's there or the authentic intimacy. And it's not so much like the classical New York Freudian model, which says that, well, unconsciously you don't really want intimacy. We're saying you do want intimacy, but unconsciously you're afraid of it. That's right. It's just too scary. It's just way too scary. These people want – as a matter of fact, that's how – people really come to us, including the original uh, patient zero couple. They come to us missing each other. They come to us. They could have been together for a few months. They could have been together for decades. We've had people that have been together for 50 years who woke up one day and just missed each other, oftentimes because there's a crisis. But this person's been sleeping with this person for 50 years and wants to know the person that he's been sleeping with, has had children with, has gone on family vacations with, has... You know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I think you captured that dilemma really well with a really great Winnicott quote, um, which was, the development of a self may involve a sophisticated game of hide and seek in which it is a joy to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. I mean, when <laughs> I read that, I, I really, um, that really hit me. Can you, can you talk mm. about this quote? That's an excruciatingly painful place to be because it feels like there's no way to win. Uh, And I think a lot of people relate to that. What's the problem with being found? And what's what's the benefit of being hidden? Yeah, well, that again, I want you, I do. Almost as much as I don't. I want you, what, to find me. I want you to know me. I want you to love me. I want you to care about me. But the more I feel the intimacy, the intimacy as we define it is, not I'm going to tell you, all my deepest, darkest secrets. Intimacy, as we define it, is I'm going to live neck close to you, shoulder by shoulder every day, and you're going to get to see me spilling out all over the place all the time in ways that you, as my most cherished person, is the last person I'd want you to see me you know, all ugly and messy and screwed up. So finding in some funny way in the realm of intimacy is finding out all that messy, messy, messy business. But what you really get is the feeling, the deep heart feeling that you know, you love and accept me as I am. It's so, also uh, it's also a deeply individual issue because we we come to know ourselves partially through getting closer to people who are who are near us, and by remaining hidden from other people, a person can remain hidden from themselves, from self knowledge, and they can keep themselves from living perhaps the kind of life that would be much more satisfactory to them. And I've heard people say. You know, this is a fantasy that I'm going to become an artist. I don't tell anyone because if I told anyone really important to me, and as a therapist, you're kind of in a shadow zone between being real and not real so they can, they can tell us. 
It doesn't commit them. <laughs> if they tell someone who's really important to them, they, they commit themselves to the other person and therefore to themselves. And become accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the Sullivan idea of reflected appraisal, right? I mean, that there we are reflecting this self to or selves to, you know, this person who's so important to us. They're reflecting it back saying, oh, you want that? You know, like, I, again, I want it, I do, almost as much as I don't. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, um, right. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> We have a machine that does that, actually. <laughs> you have to create a suction around the tube, but it's not worth it. It has a little irrelationship logo on it. That's awesome. You, you come up with – I think one of the things that makes the book relatable and easy to follow is that you come up with concepts that everybody can relate to. Um, they include the concept of the audience and the performer. Can you explain to our listeners what those are, how they work? Well, okay, so again, the performer is the one who, Glenn, in this case, the one who has the depressed mom and is doing the song and dance routine to make her happy. That's the performer. He's doing it overtly to, to specifically make her less unhappy. And then, wait, and, and also the performer is, at least as I see it, making a case that he or she is good. Yeah, right. I'm doing a good job, right? Like, I'm a caring partner, right? Because I brought you flowers, because I made the bed, but... The overt caretaking behaviors, they, they betray the fact that on some level it doesn't really feel to the audience that the performer is really taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Something always feels off or missing. Right. Right. And the That's audience. Right. The audience is the one who's got the door ajar. You know, <laughs> the audience is the one who the back door is always open. Um, the audience is the one who comes and pretends like the care that's being offered by, say, a performer, but usually by parents originally, is good enough, that it's effective. And, and you know, I, I would say that what I've seen is that the audience oftentimes gets, they do get kind of duped by this. For a while, I think the audience really believes that what the performer is doing is working. I mean, that's why, again, like, during, you know, let's just say every relationship has a honeymoon period. And I think during the honeymoon period, the performer thinks that the performance is actually really working, and the audience is like, you know what? This is pretty good performance. Like, I think I'll stick around, you know, bravo, bravi, brava. <laughs> right. Well, at, at the beginning, I think, you know, people are hoping that they will meet someone that will solve major existential problems for them. Mm. They're hoping they'll meet someone and fall in love and then kind of like a magic wand, their life will be saved. And also the oxytocin levels are through the roof. Mm. Dopamine levels are through the roof with reward circuits. There's a lot of sexual hormones at play. Those things hormonally, neurotransmitter-wise, tend to fade off within the first year or two. Uh, and unless that honeymoon phase neurophysiology gives way to a, like a long-term bonding physiology for the brain, the couple is going to be stuck in this early phase honeymoon chemistry that doesn't work two or three years down the road. Uh, so in terms of the audience and performer... When the baggage arrives. Yeah, that, cre- <laughs> that creates a real problem because what worked for both of them at first, it's not working, but they're continuing to, they're continuing to pretend that it is working. Um, and the, the audience who looks like they're not doing very much is working really, really hard to maintain the illusion with the performer. Yeah, what, But they don't know they're doing it. What does the audience get out of doing that? Again, the same thing. They get the, the as we say, enactment. The acting out of anxiety allows the feelings to bypass awareness. Well, so their terror yeah. 
is literally like in any other acting out behavior because this is a routine we use enactment and we actually call it a song and dance routine what they do together so what they're doing for each other is they're helping each other avoid awareness of anxiety associated with intimacy that's right that's the one thing they're doing for each other now the other thing is they're not really doing anything for each other they're just behaving in a condition response habitual kind of way so they're they're doing what uh they've been trained to do without reflecting on what they're doing so uh, in that regard it it may not have anything to do with what they're doing for each other or or for oneself it's just what they know how to do and they don't know not to do it until they have some kind of moment of reflection or curiosity or awareness that we in the book call discovery that has to be a mutual thing it's it's the window of opportunity i think as That's you, right. as you yeah. mentioned it you introduce the concept of compassionate empathy how is that first of all what is it and how is it different from this kind of faux caregiving that you're pointing out goes with the relationship all right so empathy alone we see and a lot of a lot of people who who have written about empathy see as a, a tool, empathy is the ability to see yourself in the other person's shoes. There are two kinds of empathy, cognitive empathy, where you can understand the other person's point of view, emotional empathy, where you, you feel something like what they're feeling. But empathy by itself is problematic because it's not regulated. A person can over-empathize and over-identify and get into real trouble uh, you see that, of course, with a lot of compulsive caregivers or people with a, a rescuer complex. People can also under-identify, um, under and they can appear to be sociopathic or disconnected, uncaring, checked out emotionally. So there's a sweet spot for empathy, which is a shared experience of of mutual empathy. And we think that compassion is that which regulates empathy. Compassion, by definition, in the uh, compassion meditation literature, is the impetus to act to relieve suffering. So empathy can give you the ability to detect suffering. Compassion allows you to respond to it appropriately. Okay, And that includes one's own suffering as well as the suffering of the other person. So when you combine them into compassionate empathy in a group of two or more people and a couple, for example, then it allows the couple to regulate one another in terms of caregiving, uh, but also it allows the people to have conversations which become <clears throat> constructive and growth oriented. Well, and, and, and we followed up on this concept by coming up with a term that isn't so much a part of this book, but we're really following through with it now, which we call relationship sanity. And that is using compassionate empathy to create a give and a take. Because your relationship is you're either giving or you're taking. Compassionate empathy into relationship sanity is where you are both giving and taking at about equal measure. And I think one of the things that's helpful in the book that might help people gauge whether they're striking the right balance is the 40-20-40 model. Can that's what we're talking about. But can you explain what that is? And yeah, how, yeah, how that, it that's exactly it. That is the relationship sanity model, which we see as. I mean, it's really a process. It's a structured listening process. The kind of understanding behind it is this idea that there, you know, that there's an imaginary fifty percent line between myself and whoever I'm giving care to, and that 
I agree not to go more than 10% into that person's territory, which brings me to 60, and no less than 40% into that territory. So that 20% in the middle is a shared space of giving and receiving. It's a, it's a communication tool. There are rules that people follow. One rule is that you take turns listening. We use a timer usually for three minutes at a time. You can do it with more than two people. When one person is speaking, the other person has to listen. And the other person is attempting to listen to understand and not to construct a counter-argument. They're not listening to wait to retaliate. They're, they're really trying to connect. The person who's speaking is speaking only about their own feelings and experiences. They're following a lot of the rules of couples therapy, such as not making you statements, uh, not attacking the other person, not therapizing the other person. They're trying to speak from their own heart. Uh, and the, the people follow those rules together, and it creates this compassionate empathy space where the 20% in the 40-20-40 is uh, – a metaphor for a growing shared mutual space of understanding. And reciprocity, that, that again becomes the central core of relationship sanity because it's a, it's a re- reciprocal space. Right, and people would do this regularly, and the whole conversation and relationship shifts between them. In fact, we use it ourselves. <laughs> so I, I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because if I understand this correctly, the concept is if I'm in a relationship, I am responsible for at least 40% of what happens. You are responsible for 40% of what happens, and then there's this 20% in the middle for which we share responsibility. When you're working mm-hmm. with your clients, how does discussion about that 20% actually work? When you sp- say that this is a space where partners can negotiate credit or blame, how does that actually go? What does that, what does that negotiation look like? Ah, one of the, I love that question because one of the things I love and one of the things that drives this space right here is a famous uh, Samuel Beckett quote that says, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. See, this space is so unique for most couples that we actually encourage couples to go into this failing. Like they fail and they fail miserably at first, but we encourage them because it's so unique. It's model changing. It's paradigm. It's a paradigmatic change for many, many, many couples. So we say no matter what you do, don't give up on that space. It, it is unprecedented. You don't need to be ready. You don't need to be able. You just need to be willing to put yourself out there. Yeah. Be accountable for your contributions. And we use a quote uh, from from 12-step model, which is all inventory taking is not done in red ink. So you're in that space. You're not just talking about how you contributed to what's wrong with the relationship. You're also talking about how you're contributing to what's right, including being in this office with this therapist going through this process right now. It's a thrilling, thrilling thing to see people coming out of that dark space and just putting their toes into that, that, that 20% space together. So, so the, the 40-20-40 process, the, the attitude is non-judgmental and non-critical. We try to encourage clients or readers to be curious about themselves. And one of the things that the 40-20-40 does is it creates boundaries so that the conversation can be safe. Many times couples are used to getting into 
conflict and the conflict turns, quote unquote, ugly, mm-hmm. they end up attacking and hurting each other. And they're stuck in a cycle of constantly re-injuring each other. And that's what they know how to do. Um, and then the trauma builds up and then they don't they don't know how to get out of that. We give very clear guidelines. Either someone is following the guidelines in the book. And as Mark is saying, it takes practice. We don't expect people to get it on the first go. We're starting a process of speaking differently mm-hmm. uh, or we're working with them directly and we're giving them a little more hands-on coaching. Uh, and one of the important things for me, the learning a new language metaphor is very important because there's this old way of, of speaking, which is the language of ear relationship. And we're trying to help people learn a new language, which just as with learning a spoken language is possible to do when you're an adult, but it's it's a little harder when you've missed the developmental window. Mm. And they didn't get it when they were young because they grew up in an irrelationship-soaked family, so, um, which is not anyone's fault. So speaking of language, neuropsychology is not my first language and may not be the first language of many people, but it has a really prominent place in the book. And I wanted to know what inspired you to... Um, give us such a prominent place in the book. You know, Mark can speak to this as well. From from my perspective, and I think this is a growing awareness, the 21st century is the century of, of the brain. And it's important to include it because we have a growing understanding of what that means. But I think pragmatically, when people read it, and we've we've tried to make it very user-friendly, and relatively um, downplayed in the book. But when people read it, it it gives them another tool for understanding that these things aren't something you blame yourself for. Mm -hmm. Maybe they got, quote-unquote, wired into you. There's there's some level of neurotransmission going on when you're in a relationship or when you're a kid. And it gives people, uh, I think, a little bit of room to think about what they're working on, similar to the way we include attachment theory. Mm-hmm. These things aren't meant as an excuse, like you're, you're, you're not off the hook, but you're also not on a hook. You're really just trying to understand, and this is just an important framework for understanding. But we've certainly, we've tried to keep it um, very readable. So we say a little brain science goes a long way, mm-hmm. and you don't need any kind of, I think, degree uh, in neuroscience to understand the book. It's, uh, at least I, I think most people have described it as user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even extending that into what, what we came up with is this concept of brain lock. It includes brain science. It, it, it allows kind of a melding of interpersonal, internal, dynamic. And so we really just try to give as many different angles in this book, because this is sort of our flagship book to what has now become a much bigger, bigger project for us. Yeah, I I think, again, pragmatically, it allows people like the idea of brain lock to understand, you know, I'm caught in something. It's not my fault, but I can change it and we can change it together. Right. Which, again, is what the 40-20-40 really allows as a as a process. Well, I don't know if this was your intention, but actually my experience as I was going through the book and becoming more familiar with the, the brain science part of this was that there's actually something quite encouraging about mm. learning that you can actually, by taking certain steps, change the wiring of your brain. There's, mm-hmm. there's something yeah, that's, encouraging and even hopeful about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that. That's exactly the point. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for putting it so clearly. 
people are very into the idea of like a brain hack. We're saying if you can understand what's going on, on, on multiple levels, including the brain level, then you can change it better. Uh, and one of the most powerful tools for changing brain wiring are social experiences. So that's why the book is not a self-help book. It is a self-other help book. And some of the exercises are about the individual, but many of them involve the participation of someone important to you. Mm-hmm. And it's the power of the social group. Maybe Mark could talk about the Rat Park experiments with addiction to illustrate that. Please do. Well, I, I, we have a blog about that, too, that you can find on um, Psychology Today. But, yeah, I mean, there's been all this uh, study, these studies that have gone on in addiction saying it's really more about the connections that we have uh, to other people than it is about, you know, any kind of thing going on specifically in the brain. There's a brain, uh, uh, you know, kind of environment interaction that's going on where they found that, you know, rats – um, would would actually prefer you know to go play in this rat park you know hanging out with all their pals than they would just to be you know caught up in uh, the use of heroin. Yeah, and the point is that when the experimenters made the experiments, they would put rats in isolation and they would all become addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. But if they set up an experiment where the rats had access to heroin and they were in a rich social environment, they did not become addicted to heroin nearly as often. Yeah, and Portugal actually took this experiment and tried it out as a social, more social experiment, and they had phenomenal success. So that's why a lot of group approaches help, and we think a group approach to your relationship is similarly powerful for, as we say, unlocking brain lock, and mm-hmm. it is meant to be hopeful. Yeah, yeah. It's a very optimistic book. I mean, even going back to my friend that I was walking uh, to, work, to work with that day, you know, and, and her reaction, she has since read the book. She actually finds that it has been preventive of her repeating some of the mistakes that she's made in previous relationships. And she and the woman that she's in this relationship with now are, are they're doing very well. <laughs> I, I could definitely see how this would be so helpful to people. And honestly, there's nothing more optimistic than the dream sequence. You, and, and it's, mm-hmm. I don't know if um, it's just a coincidence that you named it that, but can you, <laughs> can you tell us what that is? What is the dream sequence and how does it work? Well, the dream sequence is actually the way in which you can put the process of the 40, 2040 into action. Dream stands for uh, discovery, which is, as Grant said, you know, something that people do together. They discover, they miss each other, they find that window of opportunity. They then go to R, which is repair. But we see it as interactive repair, which again, like with the 40-20-40, it's this idea that when you go off the rails in your relationship, it's an opportunity to put it back on the rails. And that space between going off and getting back on together is 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 very much we see as part of the health of relationship. We base this on the Tronic, uh, you know, the studies that yeah. we've done at Harvard. Certainly, certainly, also very much in keeping with Winnicott, the model of therapy being a process of rupture and repair, and parenting being a process of missing the mark and then and then recovering from that, rather than this idea of getting it perfect the first time. Yeah. And if you don't game over yeah and then that that leads to empowerment which is the e which we believe is again it's a two at least person process which creates a alternatives which leads to the ultimate solution to or that's a solution to a relationship which is uh reciprocity or mutuality which is the m yeah and the alternatives are really you know this this shift between empowerment and alternatives it's easy to say it's easy maybe to even underestimate the impact of that moment. But this is when people stop being mm-hmm. trapped in brain lock 
they see reality differently and they see relational reality differently, all of a sudden they thought, well, the only thing that we could do is have a fight and go to bed angry. Then all of a sudden they realize there's like 50 other things they could do that don't end up in isolation. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's like um, seeing a color that you could never see before. We're feeling a feeling that you never had access to in the past. Yeah. So it's clear that this is something that one cannot work on on one's own, really, that this is something that one works on with another person. I'm wondering in your clinical work, though, when you're working with someone at the individual level, how do you implement these ideas? I've actually seen it happen more and more often recently that actually people take these ideas to their partner. They take these ideas home. They use me perhaps as a, as a consultant, of course, and maybe even a bit of a coach. Um, but then they, they do. They take these things home. It, you know, and I've seen it happen with uh, obviously a lot of people with their romantic partners, but I've also seen people take this into work. I've seen people take this into their families. A patient of mine recently uh, had a death in her family, her grandmother, and she went to this you know big, tumultuous, difficult funeral. And a lot of this stuff over the few days she was there actually played itself out. And, and she felt when she came home that she was closer to her mother, who she'd been estranged from for a long, long time. So she, she couldn't do it on her own, but she could invite other people into it with her. Yeah, we, we certainly would encourage people to to use some of the approaches we talk about without you know without being too directive. But it, it does lend itself to a certain level of coaching, as Mark is saying. Um, but people have to do it under their own steam. It's it's not the kind of thing that you would tell someone to do it if they're not ready to really work on that. It's not going to work out very well. So part of working with an individual client as a therapist is to help them get ready. A lot of times in my experience, that means working on self-compassion uh, so that even if people are having trouble with their partner, they're learning how to manage their own feelings about being on the receiving end of that situation, their own feelings of inadequacy in making the relationship work, their sense of impatience to try to fix things. It gives them a chance to slow down, and that also helps to see new alternatives. And then the other thing, of course, is that depending on how you work as a therapist, sometimes the interactions in therapy become uh, fairly intimate and personal, and there's a chance to directly experience some of these ways of relating, uh, you know, as a therapist with a client that are radically different from what they experienced with other caregivers. And that kind of new experience in therapy people talk about all the time as having a lot of therapeutic benefit. So one of the things that I was wondering about as I was reading your book is about the influence of culture on how these things play out. If I was wondering if in your experience working with patients, if you found that some of the ways that a relationship manifest or if some of the ways by which people work their way out of it are ever culture specific? Absolutely. I mean, I'm married to a Japanese woman <laughs> and uh, we've thought actually that, that um, you know, uh, in, in the, the translate, because my wife has been so sort of intimately involved in, in my thinking about, you know, my contribution to this, um, it's been really amazing to see uh, as we talk about this, that if we are going to do, and I, I hope we will, translations into other uh, other languages, it won't be 
it won't be okay to just translate it word for word. It's so unique, I think, culture to culture, that however it is that caregiving plays out in any particular culture, that the translation will really have to be a reframing and a reinterpretation. Yeah, at the same time, there's something universal about attachment and needs to be taken care of and to care for people. So there's cultural differences, but for any individual couple, I think if there is a big difference in cultural background, it means there's a lot of opportunity for mm. learning something new. Yeah. But if people are using your relationship as a way to stay disconnected, then culture can very easily be pulled into that system yeah. and, and be used as a an ex, sort of an excuse for why we can't get along. Plus, there can be communication style issues, just as different families have different communication styles. Sometimes one culture has a very different way. Um, my, my wife grew up in Hong Kong, and even the way the Chinese Cantonese language is constructed, it's quote unquote context dependent. So she may say something which to my ear is very vague, could be frustrating because I don't know what you really want. And from her point of view, it's kind of crystal clear. And why am I so dense <laughs> that when she points at something and says, um, drugstore, like, I don't understand that she wants me to go pick up saran wrap. Right. Well, I mean, we're in New York, so, I mean, we're in a place where any particular culture could be used as an adjective. You know, someone can say, my wife, for instance, can say, oh, that's so Japanese. And, like, you're supposed to understand what exactly that means. You know, I mean. <laughs> well, speak, speaking of culture, I want to also speak a bit about generational differences. I have young adult patients who deal with the kind of feigning of feelings that you so, capture so well in a particular part of the book that if you don't mind, I want to read a quote here. You say, without empathy, our world is a self-created fantasy in which we imitate feelings according to behaviors we observe in others or more distantly see in movies or television. We feign what we're supposed to feel while ignoring what we actually feel. Um, and we wrote that? <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> and I, I sometimes wonder if some of this is a generational thing. You might be familiar with uh, Sherry Turkel's work. It, it makes me wonder if mobile technology and social media are making it even harder for people to have true empathy, true Im intimacy. What do you think about the role of mobile technology and social media? Are we doomed to endless relationship because of it? Maybe, maybe not. And one of the things we've also considered, that's possible, but we also think sometimes, sometimes your relationship um, goes a little on uh, into sleep mode because we're so assured of the distance created by all this technology. We're so assured that on a Tinder, whatever, whatever, you know, uh, the mobile app, that somehow or other uh, we're safe from the things that your relationship protects us from. So we've actually seen your relationship defenses lift sometimes behind the, the, the false sense of security of the distance of Facebook and Tinder and all these other things. Well, it can create a safe space to start, you know, a real communication. And there's some research that people in long distance, relation, distance relationships, though it's not an exact parallel, but that people in long distance relationships are as satisfied as people who live, you know, in the same area. Now, I would be careful not to go on a, a witch hunt for social media. Um, it's a tool. Like culture, it can be used to foster intimacy or it can be used in the service of remaining distant. Now, if you don't do anything actively to use it to foster intimacy, I think there's a tendency for it to incline people to get more isolated 
if they already are inclined to get isolated. Mm -hmm. And certainly Mm -hmm. with development of things like virtual reality and augmented reality, uh, people can really enter into, I think what you're alluding to is a kind of a a schizoid reality where they're living in an internal world and they they twist the external world to match their expectations uh, and specifically virtual reality and augmented reality can allow you to do just that. Um, Pokemon Go, I think, is a really interesting <laughs> example of that. I read a news story about two young men who fell off a cliff in California while looking for Pokemon. And mm. this is like one of the dangers of all this technology or the um, like Tesla autopilot where where people are getting into crashes because they think they can just let go of, of the wheel. So reality is kind of like that. You have to keep your hands on the wheel. And if you're using technology you know, you have to be smart about it, and particularly in terms of relationships. So pretty exciting. We, we have been asked to, to do some thinking about this. We, we wrote something for a blog called Boy Toy Warehouse that was you know, about using certain technologies for um, older women dating younger men. And we did one for HowDoIDate.com about some of this application of uh, geolocated dating. And so we, we have been thinking about you know, all these kind of different ways in which a relationship relates to yeah, all, all these kind of uh, technologies. If I hear you right, maybe what you're saying is that it's it's not the technology, it's us and how mm-hmm. we use it. Yes, that's right. That's right. Just like your relationship. Your relationship is a defense. It's not about us. It's about how we use it. Well, it's the same cautionary note if you look at like Frankenstein, you know, Mary Shelley or Terminator. But I think or, – or even the Sorcerer's Apprentice, like that magic can get out of hand or the genie with the wishes. Be careful how you use them. Mm-hmm. But I think what's happening with technology is it's – the difference is the technology is becoming very powerful and it runs the risk of being out of our control. And especially we're at a crucial moment in history where AI and robotics are starting to reach this tipping point. And when it comes to human relatedness, we – we have, I think, an ethical obligation to pay a lot of attention uh, and not just get wowed by how amazing um, the VR looks. I, I know someone who told me um, who's got a sexual addiction issue, you know, VR is going to change everything. And I'm never going to leave the house if I get into VR like this. Um, by VR, you say, mean virtual reality. Yeah, virtual reality, yeah, particularly virtual reality and virtual reality pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're in a relationship the way that we describe it in a funny way, you're in a kind of not quite virtual reality, but you're not really touching or being touched. And that's what this book is about. It's about helping people touch people who've been together for months, people who've been together for decades. It's about helping them reach across that cycle, that anxiety-ridden, you know, scary divide and actually touch each other. Well, yeah, well I think I... Go, go ahead. Well, you know, speaking of that, certainly there's a very practical and pragmatic aspect to the book, but I want to bring attention to at least what I perceive to be a kind of spiritual, humanistic element in the book. There's a kind of spiritual element that's implied through your ideas and approach, I think you're really trying to help people rethink not just their overt behavior or thought patterns, you're really pushing readers to question what it means to be alive in the present Mm -hmm. moment and how feeling safe and anxiety-free is kind of overrated. You even talk about accepting the world as it is and what it means to live as 
a whole person. These are things I'm more accustomed to hearing in my yoga class, but here <laughs> I was encountering them in your book, and it was wonderful. Can you speak to this? Well, I um, I was in a uh, I was in a, a restroom at a restaurant called Asinzio in the East Village many many years ago. Oh, and I restroom and I, story. Uh huh. And I I ran across this amazing graffiti in the restroom. It's in the back of the book, and it says, "Oh, your life will be." bigger than you and it will kill you with a white death with no noise with no pain it will allow you to live in an empty room not knowing what you could have been and i i was so struck by that maybe maybe in some unconscious way it was the inspiration for the original work because that that isolation that that desperate sense of being so close and yet so far away to to life to other people to you know to the world as represented by other people absolutely we think that this is a way of cracking people open. Yeah, I think we're, we're all very interested in, in living more fully, uh, personally and in relationships. For, for me, I developed a very strong interest in the, the westernized versions of compassion-based meditation and loving-kindness meditation. I'm very interested in how that has helped me personally as well as patients who are dealing with mainly trauma, which is a specialty of mine, and dissociation. I'm very interested in the neuroscience that, um, that shows that when people practice these types of practices regularly, which don't have to have any religious overtone, it changes their brains in very fundamental ways. So, gentlemen, we've taken up a lot of your time. Tell hmm. us now, what are you working on now? What is next for a relationship? Well, Central Recovery Press, our publisher, um, has uh, has come to us with an offer uh, to uh, help us develop a, a workbook. So we are working on that now. We are actually um, uh, just about to put out, I think within the week, uh, an audio version of our book. Audible.com is producing uh, an, an audible version of the book. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be out within the next couple of weeks. So we'll be really extending the exercises at the end of each chapter uh, into, again, self-other exercises and understandings to help people go even further with working through a relationship. Yeah, the, the workbook is going to give people um, a, a lot more guidelines about what to do, even though we made a very strong effort in the first book and pe- people tell us that each chapter has toward positive change exercises that a lot of people can use right away. We want the workbook to give them even more exercises and guidance to help scaffold them along that path. Yeah. Uh, and then I think eventually we, we want to work on a third book as well, which has to do with what Mark was talking about, relationship sanity, and how to achieve and maintain that. And then we've got some ideas about a business book as well, and we're offering workshops um, and consultations and, and a bunch of other things. We also, we also have some... Pr- product that people can buy on our website if they want to because our logo is is really it's beautiful and it's impactful if people haven't seen it they should look at it it's it's two faces in a circle looking away from one another and it really captures this idea of like a divided self it's on the cover of the book yeah i'm glad i'm glad you describe it because it is definitely a, a compelling image those sound like really exciting projects um And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Eugenio. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to New Books in Psychology with Eugenio Duarte. I hope you have a great week.